Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Deep podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithkc.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast brought to you by Hunt, Lift, Eat Official. I'm Carter McKenzie running with a crew of Hunt, Lift, Eat team members today. Uh, and we're going to be getting into the weeds, I think. Um, real organic and authentic, like staring at each other across a computer screen where it should be holding a beer around a campfire, but Hey, we make do with what we got. And, uh, yeah, let's jump into it. I got, I got some folks to introduce to you guys. So, uh, we're going to go from my left to my right. We got, uh, old John Lippett, my, uh, my Canadian brother. What's going on, John? How you doing folks? Uh, Jonathan Lippett. I've been on the podcast before, uh, old family friend of Carter's, uh, you know, in the game of hunting for a couple of years now, um, but been thinking about conservation and natural resource management issues for uh, many years now. So happy to happy to be here. Heck yeah! And then uh, representing the state of New York, the great island of Long Island, we got Frank Melito. What's going on, Frank? What's happening, fellas? Glad to be here again. Uh, that's some big words that I got to fill with. Um, but yeah, man, uh, glad to be here. Glad that we can make it work again. And uh, it's not on a Tuesday night while I'm working. That's right, man. Yeah, you have the most ridiculous schedule. Anybody I know. So Frank, why don't we why don't we jump right into it, man? We uh, let's let's talk about how this conversation came to bear and how we're all meeting here on a on a Sunday afternoon. All right. Well, so uh, I'm not sure who it was, but I know that. Somebody put up a post in the uh, team page, right? Just you know, uh, talking about some uh, some factors about ethics and about you know teaching new hunters. Then, then I know that a bunch of us, including myself, started to us and oh yeah, you know, I think that people need to learn about X, Y, and Z and and whatnot. And then it kind of became a thing. So, and I I know that we all have our own specific inputs, and some of us share the same feelings. So. Yeah, and it was uh, yeah. I think the wheels were turning on that one. I I liked I liked the energy and where it was going. I think it's, you know, we were talking about topics that guys talk about all over the country, you know, pretty consistently. I would I would say um, throughout this this kind of outdoor community, and we're talking ethics. We're talking introducing new hunters to the outdoors. We're talking barriers to entry. We're talking this changing industry quote unquote like i don't even love using that term um i'll put it in air quotes but it is an industry right it's a very multi-billion dollar industry the hunting industry and marketing and you know yeah right there's a lot to it so a lot going on here yeah i mean it's it's you know definitely ever-changing and uh, i think that it's due in part a lot to social media, whether that's a good thing for certain things and a bad thing for others. But uh, all I know is this is definitely going to be a controversial topic that is going to be different depending on your area, but can also be synonymous a- as well. 
So let's jump right in there. Let's talk ethics. Uh, let's talk hunting ethics because we haven't really jumped into this with this podcast very much. And, you know, like you said, like regionally, the answers to a lot of these questions or conversations would be different, Frank. I, I think you're exactly right on that. I think the way we do things down south here are definitely not the same as folks who get to chase elk, you know, in the mountains on public land in Montana. It's just a different ball game, And comparing the two is not always apples to apples. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. But I mean, I think that the basics of it can be used across all, you know, facets of hunting and states with a little bit of tweaks here and there. So, I mean, how do you want to kick this off? Uh, what you got, Jonathan? No, I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I, I'll take your guys, um, I'll take your, your lead um, on this discussion. But I, I think what you just said there, I wanted to put a pin in it, um, Frank. I think it's, it's important to note that although the dynamics of different areas is different, like, for example, where I live, we don't have the same issues uh, as perhaps Donald does in, in Texas around managing nuisance species like hogs. Um, I think that presents a very interesting use case um, for managing wildlife um, where, you know, in a, a targeted fashion, essentially exterminating or, you know, using arrows and bullets as a strong conservation tool um, to reduce the numbers dramatically of a population like that doesn't map onto other ecosystems as well. Um, so that's a really interesting use case to, to study from an ethics perspective. Um, but what I do think transcends all of these different areas is the ethic, the importance of the ethic of fair chase. Um, to me, that's, that's sort of, that comes down to, that's the, you know, the, the ethic that, that Aldo Leopold, um, and the, the forefathers of, of the conservation movement, like Teddy Roosevelt expounded on, which is like this idea that you do right by the animal, um, and, and you take a long view on the ecosystem, right? And it, that means that means passing on animals that are not in a, you know, a particular age class or, or sex um, because you're taking the long view, because you're thinking about your grandson who's going to be hunting that same woodlot. Um, and, and I think that carrying that forward, doesn't matter where you live, that should be like the driving ethos. Um, but that's my starting point for this discussion. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I feel like we all have the same end result, right? That's going to be to to put meat on the table for our, our families and make sure that there's game for our next generation. So my two boys, you know, Carter's daughter uh, and their kids and so on and so forth, right? But I do feel, though, within that realm that there's little things that can't be done that right now with you know, modernization of hunting and with the, the ever expanding industry that certain things get kind of lost in, you know, translation, like the, the basic, like, uh, you know, ethics on what you sh maybe should do or should not do, you know, be it something like, Oh, am I going to let this little deer pass? So in two years it could be bigger or stud and, you know, produce or, Hey, am I going to set up 20 yards next to that other guy? Because I want to hunt this spot. You know, so I feel like a lot of that kind of gets convoluted with the use of more so social media and online than opposed to like, hey, man, listen, I know that you're new at hunting. Let me take you out and I'll show you how things should be done in a proper way. 
I totally agree. And, and I think this gets to one of the, the core issues, um, which is that like there is not an agreed upon ethic, unfortunately. So I think the three of us, we're, we're coming at it from a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty similar position, um, conservation minded position. Um, but as we know, not everybody does. Um, and so it's difficult to say, to think about the hunting uh, space, I, I agree, Carter, I think calling it an industry is is, uh, is problematic, but to think about it like it's sort of a, a homogeneous or a monolithic group of individuals with the same motivations um, is, is just not the case. So in, in, I think, you know, to try to articulate like this is a hunting ethos um, and that when you begin engaging in hunting, like you can expect that these are the cultural norms and conventions that you will be, you know, that you will be governed by. It's just not the case. So I, I do think that there is a place, particularly on platforms like this, to, to you know, essentially have a communications exercise. Because fundamentally, hunting suffers from a lot of, like, it's, this is a breakdown in communication, right? Like, we, we know the statistics around the importance of hunting as the, you know, the largest contributor, both in dollars, but also man hours towards, uh, you know, protecting, preserving and, and expanding um, wild places in, in, in the North American wildlife management model has been incredibly successful. We've seen massive population rebounds from near extinction in a number of species. We, we know there's more white-tailed deer now in North America than there were pre-Columbus. Um, so there are animals that are thriving. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the Boone and Crockett type ethos that said, listen, guys, like, let's pull back from just, you know, uh, you know, um, hunting without regulation, we need to, we need to self manage, which is fundamentally how this started. Um, and that came in also with with tax dollars, like a voluntary excise tax that the hunting industry imposed on itself. So we, we know all of this, these good data, but what we suffer from is an ability to articulate this to the broader population. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think work needs to be done in that space, particularly as the face of hunting changes and resistance towards hunting uh, increases. Yeah, and unfortunately, the negative, like I, I say this all the time, I find myself saying this all the time. Unfortunately, we can be our own worst enemies in our own sphere. And it really only takes a couple individuals. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the only hunting you see in popular news media is full negative. And there's a lot of, frankly, there's a lot of dumbasses out there that do a lot of uneth unethical things, um, either with wanton waste or, yeah. you know, uh, whatever, trespassing or, you know, the desire, the folks who covet the kill or like an X amount uh, size you know, antlers or like whatever yeah those who who covet that more so than following the rules regulations and unwritten ethics right if you're willing to cut corners for that that's unfortunately what can then represent the face of this community to the world outside of hunting right so like i would imagine maybe frank you could tell us a little bit before we press record you were talking a little bit about your experience in the sphere of hunting on Long Island, and it's kind of like a mix. But if you were to ask me, my knee-jerk reaction would be: New York may not be the most. Some parts of New York may not be the most friendly towards um, a someone who 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 does hunt. 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I guess you can call it fortunate to be able to hunt on both spectrums of my state. So upstate New York, where it's all, you know, farm fields, corn fields, everyone's pro is super pro hunting. It's, it's more so a, a way of life. So I, I have experienced that with my family and friends up there. And it's a complete culture based around hunting like most of our country is, right? So, but then again, I also live on the island where I'm, a, let's say me personally, I'm probably about an hour, hour and a half east of like the city, right? So where I live, yeah, we have more people, we have some traffic and more condensed populations, but where I'm at, like I have a couple farms near me. If I go 25 minutes, 45 minutes east, there's wide open farms, you know, 200 acre farms, right? So, so I think I kind of have that like dual spectrum here. So prime example, where I live is such a negative connotation around hunting. Oh, like this hunter, he's going to sit in, in a tree. He's going to shoot my dog. He's going to shoot my kid. It's like, no stupid. Like uh, I'm not just going to shoot random things because I want to kill stuff. Right. Um, but yet going back to like ethics, we have, you know, townships down here who they're hiring sharpshooters at night who they're with, you know, silencers, they're shooting deer. And guess what? Those deer, as far as I know, are not being donated. They're being burned or they're being dumped in a landfill. And you tell me that that's ethical as opposed to a guy like me or you who's going to sit in a tree, shoot a deer and feed my family and friends with it. But I'm evil because I have a weapon, right? Um, and then we have other townships where they're spending thousands of dollars. They are tranking deer and giving them vasectomies. And then they're, you know, walking around with, with tagged ears. But mind you, I can't tell you how many tagged does I've seen that have fawns following. But now that meat from that doe is poison. It's garbage. And those fawns, fawns, in my opinion, they're going to grow up with some kind of like a defect. So how ethical is that compared to, again, just letting a guy who likes to hunt and feed his family hunt? So it's kind of like that that fine line again, you know? So, I mean, I don't I don't know if that kind of answered your question or not, Carter. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. I just always find it interesting. John, one time you told me, you put it in you put you gave me this verbiage and you said there is a pernicious caricature of hunters yeah. that the world can view the lens that people can view hunters through. And I've never stopped thinking about that. Those two words together, because it's, it's fact, man. It's, you know, if you're not in the sphere, it can, that can be the reality. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think this, this, this gets to the point I was, I was making earlier. Um, I think there, there is clearly a popular caricature of, of hunters. I think we all, we, we, we run up against, um, this caricature that people have in their minds of hunters. Um, all of us could sit here and articulate like our motivations for hunting, whether it's, you know, for, you know, putting clean, lean protein on the table for our families or to, um, to tap into, um, you know, essentially our, you know, uh, our, a lot of those primal 
intuitive instincts that we have um, to to engage with nature that I think all of us from an evolutionary perspective we have and and I think that lives inside um, all of us I think it lives inside some of us stronger than others um, but uh, you know and I, I think all of us would understand those motivations but the broader population unfortunately they're very disconnected from from that th- that discussion so um, whereas in a perfect world, uh, the broader population would view the hunting community, at least in the, U- the United States, it's like essentially a 10 million person strong conservation army. Like that would be, that would be the best positioning. Um, and, and, and I think that you can make that argument, uh, using facts and using data and using historical trends around repopulation and conservation dollars, as I mentioned earlier, um, but that's simply not the case. And um, I think there, there's been a number of these like types of focusing events. I think of, you know, in recent history, I think of uh, like Cecil the lion, for example, and, 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 and the broader population will latch on to these specific instances uh, where, where they view as sort of um, foul play in the hunting space. And they extrapolate that to the hunting community at large. Um, so, you know, again, I, I, I get back to this, this same issue that this is largely a communications exercise um, within the hunting community that has largely been ineffective thus far. And we need to be better at articulating our own ethics, trying to drive the hunting community towards agreeing on a consensus set of ethics. This is the work that all the Leopold tried desperately to do right? Um, articulating like a, a shared vision for conservation um, and, and, and motivation for hunting um, that's separate from, you know, some of these more controversial spaces like big game hunting. Um, and, and I don't think that's an impossible task. And, and, and you know, I, I, I see a lot of reasons for optimism in this space. Um, I know, Frank, you wanted to touch on the idea of the changing face of the hunting uh, space, the hunting industry. And, and that is, that is happening. I mean, you know, perhaps in a, a pessimistic light, we are seeing, uh, numbers of hunters across the board declining, but that the demographics within the, the existing hunting population is changing. So that's growing in the, uh, non-white male category and amongst females. Um, so th- there's a diversification that's happening Something I did think was interesting. This is unrelated to what you were just talking about, John. Um, but Cecil the Lion, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's like yeah. that's a hot for sure. That's like a super like gray area though in like ethics, man. Like, but like yeah. also like maybe the dude was a rich asshole. Maybe he was a nice guy. Maybe he was a rich nice guy. But like, if the dude wants to go shoot a lion in Africa and it's like legal and you do it through an outfitter over there. Fucking spend your money however you want, dude. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But the media really got a hold of that story and it really gave it a negative spin, you know? Well, because well, so, no, it's because they brought like their their issue from Africa here. And it's like all the, the rules are different. It'd be like it'd be like a soldier going you know, overseas doing what he does, and then he comes home and we like spank him for it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. well, there's certain things that are just different in, in different places than here, you know what I'm saying? But unfortunately, well, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's a there's so much nuance to that, right? Um, and and I think the the uh, the hunting the folks take particular issue with specific animals. Um, I, I, this is what um, 
uh, Steve Ranella calls charismatic megafauna, right? Like there are certain animals which hold a, uh, a, a, a sort of a unique position within the society and within the culture. Um, and, and, and lions are one of them. They're sort of a no-go zone. However, if you were to go to that community in Africa, um, the, 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 the local folks that actually set up that hunt, um, you know, the fact that some dentist from Minnesota was willing to pay $150,000, like that was that injection of capital into that community changed all of their lives, right? So there was an auction process that happened and he bid on the ability to hunt this lion who was an aging male lion. Um, and so, you know, everybody views it through this narrow lens saying it was a canned hunt. Um, it's not my style, you know, high fence hunting with, uh, you know, essentially a, a, a decrepit old uh, male lion. But I think there's a lot of nuance there. I think it's a perfect case study for a discussion around ethics because, you know, th- th- there's there's a lot of spillover to that community that was absolutely game changing. Um, so to view it through our extremely privileged perspective of sitting, you know, in North America, not understanding why you would ever want to do that. Um, I, I think there's just, there's a lot lost. There's a lot of complexity in that discussion that was not taken into consideration. Yeah. I mean, you know, for sure. But I mean, unfortunately I feel like a lot of it has to do with like, and this is going to sound really bad, but the lack of, of education on this topic in like our mainstream society. Yep. So like, for example, over in Africa, like they, rely very much heavily on people like us from our country going over there and spending money and you know and and they're okay with certain animals being taken because you know what they eat a lot a lot more game than we do when it comes to certain things yet we'll come here and then everybody wants to monday morning quarterback i'm like oh well he shouldn't have done that well well why not like and as you said jonathan he went over there and spent a hundred and Fifty, you know, thousand dollars. Think about how many people that he paid. How many people that can now feed their families, that can now support and do whatever they need to do that they couldn't. Or maybe it went to a village to help them fix something. You know, yeah, but yet yeah. we come here and we try to, unfortunately, interject. And you know what? Is it is it our place? Maybe not. Maybe. But I feel like it's just it's two complete different, like, uh. All, all entities, you know, like for, for example, I I do nuisance hunting down here on the island, and when I tell you that's that's a controversial issue down here, because you know yeah. there's you know people down here who are like oh you know I I love these deer, I love seeing them. Like why do you want to kill them all? And it's like well I don't want to kill them all. Like I love driving and seeing a deer also, but like mm. I'm also not naive to the fact that ticks are becoming a problem for our families and that if there's too many deer per square mile there's not enough food there's not enough shelter they're gonna die off anyway so why not put them to good use hey everybody we'd like to give a special shout out to our podcast sponsor rack getter sense and lures like hunt lift eat rack getter sense is a veteran owned and operated company with a personal touch gerard their owner is a former marine and firefighter who will walk you step by step through the buy-in process with a personal touch I reached out to him and he gave me his personal cell phone number and walked me through his products and the buying experience could not have been more efficient. My favorite product of his is the Hot to Trot Dough and Heat Scent and I use it religiously through the rut with consistent results. 
Many of our Hunt, Lift, Eat team members are loyal customers of Rack Getter Scents and Lures, and we use this product year after year to help them execute in the field. Follow them on their Instagram at RackGetterSense2.0 and check out their products at RackGetterSense.net to start luring in your next big buck. Frank, I think I think that's a great point. I mean, uh, I think uh, you know, as a as a, a real um, there's a there's a major touchstone in a lot of people's lives um, around this issue of nuisance hunting because in in a lot of major urban areas. Um, where within city limits, for example, or even around the periphery, hunting is no longer allowed. Um, and a lot of that, you know, uh, the genesis of that might have been from a public safety perspective. They don't want people, you know, letting off rounds within city limits. Uh, but, what, you know, the sort of the net effect of that is that we've seen an explosion of the deer population amongst other species, which you know, not a lot of people understand actually do incredibly well in proximity to humans, right? Um, like the white-tailed deer population, as I noted um, earlier, is, is you know, at all-time highs on the, the North American continent. And a lot of that has to do with their ability to thrive in proximity to humans, proximity to human agriculture on the periphery of all these farmers' fields. Um, and there is an effect of that. You know, there there there, there is there are downsides to that. And, and I think a lot of folks, they just think about the cute deer, but you know, for me, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to remove the emotion from this and outsource my thinking on this to the army of wildlife biologists around the continent that tell us we need to manage these animals. Right. And the intuitive way to do so, which you touched on is to do it within the framework already set up of, uh, recreational hunters who, you know, come at it from both a pragmatic perspective of wanting to put meat on the table, but also from a, a heritage preservation perspective and who are willing to put dollars to participate, to put dollars to use to actually participate within this framework that has the spillover benefit of improving the character of the ecosystem. And that just makes so much sense. It, it should be an intuitive argument to make to folks, but we're breaking down somewhere. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, fellas. And I, I don't, it may not, I don't want to speak for Canada, but it may be, I don't know, man. It's kind of like, well, to your first point, right? The biggest deer in Georgia are going to be taken in Fulton County, which is Atlanta. Right. Roswell and Buckhead, like where my parents live. There's 200 inch deer that live down there in these I mean, in the city, right? They're yep. absolutely massive, right? It's a badass animal. Love the whitetail. I mean, they can yep. live anywhere, right? They do incredibly well, right? And then when you factor in like things like nuisance hunting, like Frank is talking about, like, I mean, if you just look at the number of like insurance claims from like car accidents from deer, yep. right? That's why that's a, a major adjuster in how many deer like we're allowed to take here in Georgia it's they're so wildly overpopulated we're about 12 deer a year right 12 right but like it's not insane to think like i mean pe people die hitting animals on, on the road you know and then you know up and up and like it's i don't know it's something that definitely needs to be uh controlled and you mentioned like you know government hired professional hunters frank and that's a very real thing that the government spends a lot of money on across the it's united so states sad. So to manage sad. populations when it should be they should be enabling and working with hunters 
um, and providing for and like make it a youth hunt, make it a whatever, make it a educational opportunity or like veterans or, you know, who, whoever. Right. But give them the opportunity to do that instead of paying people to come in at night and kill these things. Um, but it's it's very much the American way. Right. It's like very out of sight, out of mind. Um, I don't want to have to th- if I don't see it like it, it doesn't exist. And then you get states like California and, and Oregon and some of these other states, uh, British Columbia, maybe be a, a good connection with, you know, banning their grizzly hunts. They're still The government's still going to manage those populations. They, yep. they still can't let people get killed by grizz and mountain lions and things like that. So instead, they hire government contractors to come in and kill those animals, which is the same outcome. Like, what? Are, how is it even a discussion? What are we even talking about here? But now we're just preventing hunters from participating in those uh events and then you're missing out on the tax dollars and not only you're missing out on being paid if you're a government agency but it's costing the taxpayers a lot of money and there's an entire support ecosystem and an entire support economy of outfitters and and retailers that rely on the the spillover of of all of these activities as well yeah but then you know what kind of drives me nuts is that like people are okay with our tax dollars going towards sharpshooters coming in with high-powered rifles, but yet they don't want to see a single hunter with a bow and arrow, you know, up in a tree because I'm dangerous. But not, but not the guy coming in with a high-powered rifle that's silenced at night with night vision, but yet I'm dangerous with bow and arrow. So it kind of goes back to that, like, like educational thing. It's like, well, but because the government is telling me it's okay, like I'm okay with it. But yeah, because mainstream media tells me that hunting is bad, I'm not okay with you feeding your family. So it's kind of like goes back to that thing where it's like, like how far have we come from like our, our roots, you know, so to speak. Like think about the ways of like our our ancestors, right? Hunting was a way of life for some people. It's it still is, but I feel like through through evolutionary changes. Like, especially, like, for example, where I'm at, where it's more people and life is busier, people have come so far from that, like, that that something as simple as, as like, hunting and fishing is foreign. And I, I try every day to help us go the other way by even, like, if I have a barbecue, I'm like, hey, guys, listen, uh, I had some, you know, leftover venison sausage. If you guys want to try it, let's try it, right? And I've had people who, who not to say that, that they're against hunting, but, like, they don't understand it. They're like, wow, this is awesome and like yeah man like i went out and got it like and and like another buddy of mine made it so like not only did i go out and get it but i helped somebody's business by paying them to make me sausage and now i'm sharing it with all of you and like you sometimes some people you can kind of see that light where it's like huh all right cool so like even though i don't want to hunt like i kind of understand it now you know so like that's what i try and do or if like there's someone who who's new who wants to get in to hunting or just try or just try something or has questions I, I try to like show them the way and explain to them that it's not it's not as intimidating as, as it seems and you're not a bad person if you want to learn and teach your children especially nowadays look at what's going on with all these you know like potential shortages and with all these cuts in farms and and whatnot right yeah I mean I, I I've I think you know Two or three times now in this discussion, I've I've sort of uh, I've I've said like we need to be better at communicating this, and and at least you know the way I was putting it was that we needed to have like some national strategy. But in reality, my my instinct tells me that 
this type of change happens at the individual level. Because what yeah. we do see is we see like within the media, we see these narratives. Um, and, and, and I think that influences a lot of people's opinions about hunters. These are largely folks that don't know any hunters. But I can tell you that from the conversations that I have within my own personal sphere of influence, the conversations are very different. I, I'm, I'm met often with a lot of curiosity. Why do you hunt? Oh, why, why do you hunt when you can just go, uh, you know, get, get meat at the grocery store? Um, and when I begin to actually, you know, deconstruct and unpack these preconceived notions that people have around hunters, I think, you know, a lot of people, like you said, Frank, that light bulb kind of goes off, right? We know, you know, 90, anywhere between 95 to 98% of the population eat meat, eats meat. And so you begin to unpack that. It's like, okay, so you're a meat eater and you care about animals, as most people would say they do. Like, let's talk about the factory farming system. It's a horror show. And so you're telling me that like me going out into the field with my 270 win or my 150 grain, you know, uh, hypodermic, uh, you know, surgical, uh, surgical tipped uh, arrow that like, that, you know, that I practice year round to use effectively that puts that animal down within a few minutes, if not instantaneously, like you're telling me that what I'm doing is somehow inhumane, but I would argue, you know, and I think any of us who have engaged in this would argue it's, it's the exact opposite. And if you, if you were to really discuss with most hunters, like most hunters have a deep reverence for these animals, a deep respect. And, and what, what, you know, I, I've seen grown men brought to their knees with, uh, with bad shots or, or, you know, if something, if this animal is not, you know, um, is not removed in, in the most humane way. And so I, I think when you begin to, to press on some of these issues, both as hunters, but non-hunters alike, there's a lot of daylight between us. Um, and, and I think more people are open to this than, than we think. And, and my own experience has been that this change does happen at the individual level. I know a lot of people who spent their whole lives camping and and hiking and mountain biking and all these types of things and i say hey listen you love backcountry camping so do i i just do it with some of my best friends in the world and we hike through you know hard tough country but we have rifles with us and we're participating in that ecosystem we're doing so in an intelligent way through the spirit and the ethos of fair chase and we're really contributing and participating in that area for better or for worse um, so like the, the bridge between backcountry camping and backcountry hunting, um, particularly for meat eaters is like, it is an intuitive one. Um, but I, I think there is still a remaining barrier to entry there for folks to take that leap. But, um, I think the motivation and the ethos is sort of the same. Um, anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. And I was going to say like, so what is the call to action? Right. Cause we can like sit on here and, and bitch and moan about like the unfairness and like the unfair portrayal. Right. Which, you know, you got to get that off your chest for sure. Yeah. But what's the call to action. Right. And you're exactly right. It's every individual interaction that we have as hunters, when we are afield, when we are at work, talking with our coworkers, when you are like, you know, bullshitting at the bar, when you're at whatever, this is today's the 30th, right? When you're at your Halloween party this weekend, when you're like talking to your neighbors, when you're talking to your kids, 
parents or your kid's friends' parents, like every individual interaction and not like you don't want to be the the CrossFit vegan and be like, you know, <laughs> and if you're not hunting, you're a piece of shit. Like, right. Join the no. cult kind of thing. No, Sorry, no. That, that wasn't directed at you, John. But how about keto, uh, man? What about keto? But people are yeah, exactly. people are genuinely curious, I think, and that's been my experience as well. Like yeah. most people are not. I've had like one or two negative interactions, but most people are curious and at least have uh, will listen. Right? People are far more reasonable, I think, than or I'd like to think than. Yeah, maybe Twitter is I, not the real world. Yes, and sometimes I pretend they are. Um, other than like one student last year who was like uber vegan was like, you're, you're going to hell. You're a bad person. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> don't talk to me like that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, th- there's always going to be th- the extremes, you know, like there's always going to be people who are just set in, in, you know, their ways who don't want to hear it. But just like, you know, Jonathan said, like most of the conversations that I have with people, it turns out to be pretty positive. Once I, I explain like, oh, you know, I do because of, you know, oh, X, Y, and Z, like, oh, wow, you know, like, I never really thought about that. Or I explain with, you know, well, hey, listen, like, think about how many deer that you see on, like, a single backyard. Now multiply that across 200 acres, right? And now think about the influx of ticks and then Lyme disease and so on and so forth. And I feel like more people than not tend to be open with, with the idea like, oh, okay, you know what? It's actually not a bad thing. So I feel like there's such a misconception of, especially of the deer hunter. I, I feel like that's kind of easy because, you know, like majority of people know, you know, deer hunters. It's like a, like an old fat guy sitting in a tree, smoking a cigar, you know, drinking a, a beer with the rifle. And I know I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of being, uh, what's the word that, I'm thinking of here, but like a lot of people think about that and see me like, wait, like you're a deer hunter. Yeah, man, I do. Blah, blah, blah. Like, wow. Okay. You know, like I'm, I'm happy that someone like you is out there doing what you do, you know? And you have the cool advantage, Frank, of being a bird hunter and having trained dogs. I think dogs are the way to bridge that gap with people who mm. may not be familiar with hunting. I think that's the avenue that everybody should be pushing because Watching dogs work, it's one of the most, I mean, that's freaking yeah. God's work on this earth. I mean, it's watching trained dogs retrieve or do a flush or whatever their job is point um, in the hunting sphere is heavenly. I mean, it's it's a, the most amazing thing in the world. And oh, I mean, it definitely dogs. changed my life, man. You know, Yeah, dude, <laughs> people love dogs, but like, I think people who don't hunt, that would be a really cool way to get them into it, right? And they're, they're birds, right? which is like way lower on the list of charismatic megafauna, right? Yeah. Deer, I, I, deer, yes, I get no. Deer, uh, deer beautiful, but like... Depends, depends. I've sure. been asked, how can you shoot that beautiful pheasant? I'm like, well, yes, it, listen, I think it's beautiful, but yeah. it also tastes wonderful. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah. like I said, it, it can kind of go either way, but yeah, listen, you know, with the whole, you know, dog thing, like I'm not gonna lie, the first time I pheasant hunted over a dog, I was like, this is awesome like i gotta get involved with this i and so for for a couple of years i actually like hung up my rifle and bow and i just trained dogs i just bird hunted i waterfowl hunted it was awesome and then uh you know and then i was like all right like now that like i have kids like let me get back into you know deer hunting so i can teach them also you know but i mean even still like honestly like new hunters i say the first thing that 
we're going to do is we're going to go shoot. Whether it be like I take people and, and do clays and squirrels because that's fun. Think about a kid. Like my first hunt was with squirrels. Like you can be loud. You can walk around. You don't yeah. got to sit there and like, you know, freeze your ass off waiting for that one deer to, you know, walk by that you can't shoot because you have an antler restriction, right? So it's like. Yeah, I think uh, I think big game hunting, uh, for all the reasons we've already uh, discussed around like barriers to entry and, and access, um, can be a challenge for some people. But I think, you know, I think bird hunting, and, and I, I include turkey hunting in that, um, and fishing. I, I, I think fishing and, and bird hunting and, and squirrel hunting, small game hunting, um, are, uh, I think that's the best gateway drug. Um, yeah. On the note of turkeys, it's, it's so funny. For whatever reason, it's, you know, we're all, we all have these preconceived notions and, and hangups. Um, my, my girlfriend, she supports what I do and she eats the food that I bring home. She's not, uh, she doesn't come from a hunting family either. Um, she, uh, she has, you know, little to no interest in, in deer hunting, maybe one day, but she said that she would turkey hunt. And I'm like, all right, let's unpack that. And she's like, you know what? As, and even she recognizes that she's, she's bringing her own hang up. She's like, that is one ugly bird. And I would have no, <laughs> no problem shooting a turkey. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are like that, right? We, yeah. we, we were all raised on Bambi. Um, yeah. So I think we have like these deep emotional grooves in our brain for, for some of these charismatic megafauna. But yeah, no, not a lot of us feel that same way about a, a big Tom. A big tom. Yeah, dude, they are ugly, man. And you ugly. have a great, John. You have a fantastic perspective because you're relatively new to this world, and mm. you went in, you went in whole hog. I mean, as you do yeah. everything, you went in, you know, full balls to the wall instantly, and you went on a badass, like intense, like really intense for a beginner hunter bear hunt yeah. in Quebec. Yeah, or Northern Ontario. Were you in Quebec? Uh, I was in Quebec. Yeah. So about, and talk uh, about talk about an animal that that is like th- throw around the ethics point of view. Like talk about an animal that can be polarizing across well the, the, our world today. That's a bizarre juxtaposition for you to be put in as a new yeah. hunter, as a never killed a big game animal. Like you're absolutely that's right. A tough the, one too. The first big game hunt I ever went on uh, was a black bear hunt. Um, it just you know I decided to jump into this space. I, I've, I grew up, um, I grew up camping and, and, and fishing and, and harvesting fish on the riverbank with my dad. So, um, I'd always sort of had one foot in this world, but, um, really jumped into the deep end, uh, three and a half, four years ago when I did my first big game hunt and just, you know, I decided to engage with this and given just where it was in the year, um, it was the spring of, uh, you know, 2018. And, and I looked at, you know, the, I looked at the calendar and I said, okay, what's, what's open. And it happened to be black bear. So I was like, all right, let's do it. Um, and for me, it was, it was important, um, as it always is that I understood the area in which I was hunting. So what I did is I reached out to a lot of outfitters, um, and I asked them point blank around, um, their own ethics um, around why, why they engage with the area that they engage in, um, spoke to about three or four different outfitters. The gentleman that I ended up hunting with, he used to be the head wildlife biologist 
for the national capital region. So that's a whole massive swath of land around Ottawa, the capital of, of, um, of Canada. And he, you know, uh, for whatever reason, he, he wanted a, a quieter um, cadence of life. So he moved out to uh, where he grew up, uh, bought a, a, a large plot of land, um, and he started outfitting. And this is a man who deeply understands bears. And the, the area that he's in has, I think, the second or third uh, largest density of, uh, of black bears in North America. It's something like uh, one black bear per 800 meters squared. So Golly. he, yeah. <laughs> Frank, that'll make Long Island look tame with your deer That's problem. crazy, yeah. <laughs> and, well, and so he handles handle that deer population down here for sure. <laughs> well, so the, the thing is, is with that density of, of black bears... Something like fifty to sixty percent of all deer and um, deer fawns and moose calves get eaten every single year. Um, so the the province of Canada—that's what we refer to our our state equivalent—is they give him a massive just bucket of of tags. He's actually they pay him to manage black bears in this area. So what he's done is a sort of an entrepreneurial minded guy. He's opened up an outfitting business to help meet that quota. This is a perfect example of conservation also having local economic benefits um, as a, you know a really smart model. But you know, I had a few conversations with him, and it just made sense. Um, but we discussed at you know at at length like why this is important. Like you know, I know predator hunting. Talk about charismatic metafauna, megafauna. It gets a lot of people's hackles up, but there is like there are specific instances, and this was certainly one of them. Areas where managing these animals is deeply important, and 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 um, I was hunting with a fellow who took a bear, and we pulled we pulled a completely intact deer fawn out of its stomach. I mean, this bear ate it whole. This was a probably a forty pound, fifty pound. Uh, deer fawn and they're just wildly effective at what they do dude and that's not a good death no. that's not a good death which is the other part people don't understand no that sounds terrible no but this is a this is not something that a lot of people are, are aware of right like there are there are uh, you know there are areas where these animals need to be managed otherwise they will eat themselves literally out of house and home and collapse their own populations, right? This is a positive feedback loop. When there's too many bears, they essentially outcompete one another, begin cannibalizing all of their own food sources, which then collapses their population. And this is a cycle you could argue, um, in absence of human beings, would be a natural cycle and it would trend towards harmony. But we're far beyond that point, right? Like the human impact on the landscape is such that we don't have an, a choice. At this point, we are stewards of this resource, whether we like it or not. And there are better and worse ways to do that. And, and, and I think going full circle to this discussion, you know, the, the bullet and the arrow are strong, powerful tools of conservation when used intelligently. Um, and I think by and large, the North American wildlife model, um, where we don't have to understand like the intimately, personally, the, the details of every ecosystem because we can outsource that to the wildlife biologists that do demographic surveys every year and issue tags based on that, right? Like we, it's an incredible model. Um, and, and I think it's been successful, but you know, I, I, I think we just need to continue to have those conversations 
to, to educate folks on, on why it's important. Um, I think what, you know, all complicated issues are, are that are, you know, science and fact-based, it, it can be difficult to articulate to people because um, there's a lot of nuance, but um, I think it's important work. So, um, yeah, the fight continues. Yeah, for sure. And I guess I, I want to be respectful of your time, John, but that kind of really brings it full circle. And obviously we're going to have to put a pin in this and do a part two because a lot more to unravel here. And I like hearing from other, you know, we have a pretty robust team here at Hot Lift Eat. And I like hearing about everybody's different, differing situations and backgrounds um, with the sport, with the passion of the love of the outdoors across countries, across, you know, borders and states and thousands of miles and you know it's it differs for everybody and it's an important conversation to have and you know we may not get the this is the list of hunting ethics that you have to follow right i guess your state dnr rules and regulations right if it's legal you can do whatever you want but like it certainly goes further than that but um there's a lot to consider when it comes to going afield and like we said the, those those individual interactions are where and maybe platforms like these are where we can make the biggest difference i think that's well said yeah for sure start yeah. small you know and work your way up yeah for uh before we jump off here you get you got any closing thoughts frank i mean i think i think that we hit pretty much most of the, the topics you know like you said i feel like we can go on and on about ethics you know um but yeah i mean you know pretty much is that it's going to be like the way that you know i see it is it's going to be personal to, to each person. Right. But I mean, let's, let's at least, you know, do our best to help spread the word to some people who may either like not be so open-minded or who may just be curious. Right. Like there's never a problem with just having a conversation with somebody who doesn't fully understand maybe like, Hey man, like, why do you enjoy hunting so much? Or like, why is it so important for you to teach your kids this, this certain way of life? I know from, you know, being down here, I know that with with COVID, I can't tell you the the influx of people that took their hunter safety course online mm -hmm. because they were like, hey, you know what? I'm home. I'm bored. And guess what? When I go to the store, I can only buy two cartons of eggs, right? So like who got chickens because of it? Who, who decided, hey, I want to learn to hunt and fish? Maybe they, they don't know how. And now they have this license and they don't know where to go, how to get started. Yes, we can go on you know, YouTube and go on you know, social media, but like that could be a useful tool, but tool, but it could also hinder us and just being like, Hey, Hey Carter, Hey John, listen, like, uh, I'm going to be going down to, you know, Georgia to, to fish or to hunt. Like, is there any certain style that you recommend that I do? Or it'd be like me going up to, to you, John up in Canada. Right. I don't, I know that, you know, things up there, but I've done way different things are done, you know, down here. So yeah. like, it's good to, to plug in with someone local, so I can kind of learn so I don't cross certain boundaries and certain, you know, barriers. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have a responsibility as hunters, um, not only to, uh, to, to assist other hunters. Um, cause I think it's, it is, there is, there is this instinct within the, the hunting community to be quite insular, right? Like we all know, like guys have their favorite spots, you know, they'll never tell you where they hunt and they, they sort of guard these, these secrets. Um, and, and maybe at an individual level, I can understand that. But I think at large, like it, it doesn't do the community like a service, right? Like I think we, we need to be um, 
we need to be like looking to the future and saying like, okay, like how do we bring other people into the fold um, as opposed to just having essentially an old boys club, right? Like that is not good PR. Um, and, and, and I think we're seeing these demographic shifts that are going to drive that change. But um, I think you're absolutely right, Frank. Um, I think it's like, it's incumbent on all of us, both within the country community to like assist one another um, but also just to continue to have these open conversations with folks that, you know, maybe come at this from a different perspective. And, and I think uh, like, you know, for us, like someone who might have a, 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 a negative preconceived notion of hunting, like we shouldn't just immediately write them off. Um, and, and, and I think we should sort of take a view to, towards educating folks, but doing so in like a way that we don't come off as jackasses. Right. And I think that can be done. Um, and, and that's the, the, the slow, hard work, I think, but, but, you know, like, like anyone, you, you, you know, yourself as a law enforcement officer, there's a lot of people that come at, you know, uh, come at things from an, 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 an uneducated perspective, but as a law enforcement officer, you have a responsibility to keep your cool and to sort of be um, a representative of, of like a, a certain way of living your life. Um, and, and, and I think as hunters, we have the same responsibility, right? Um, but maybe For sure, yeah. We, yeah, we can put a pin in that. And- yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I feel like, I mean, we could definitely bridge this into like the next stage would be like bringing in, you know, a new hunter and helping them be set up for success. You know, I definitely agree with everything that you just said, you know, us, us, you know, coveting certain, like, you know, hunting procedures and certain spots. Like, listen, everyone has their, you know, honey hole. Right. But, and it's like, okay, but listen, but like, I can take this new hunter to, this spot instead and be like hey man listen like you want to learn come on out with me or like i i love taking people who are like hey man like i want to get my kid involved i'm like dude like let's go fishing like that's fun you could be at the beach you could be at a pond like and there's no pressure like oh but you know i don't have a pole dude i got i got everything you know come on out and like like really this is great and i'm like yeah come on out Who, who cares and it's like and again you know from my job like as you guys know, I have no problem talking to talking clearly, but, um, but like, you know, I can, I can look at that different, different perspective and kind of tweak it. So like, they can be like, yeah, you know what? All right, cool. Sounds good. Let's go and, you know, give it a try. Right. So it's all about perspective and just the way that we give it off. Right. I mean, we don't, we don't always have to be hard about like, oh, you know, I, this is my hunting spot. I've been hunting this for 10 years. No, who cares? It's public, you know, come on in. But like, let's be like, Let's be amicable, amicable about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's well said. I think that's a good natural place to wrap up this one, and uh, we'll have to jump on for a part two. So Canada and New York, thanks for representing today, boys. Absolutely. absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Listeners, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you guys, and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>